Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Pascal Baudur. His books, The New Wildcrafted Cuisine, Wildcrafting Brewer, and Wildcrafted Fermentation, offer profound insight into traditional preservation techniques, foraging, and creative wild food preparation. His flavor combinations, wild concoctions, and brews will challenge your expectations and perceptions about your local flora. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Okay, so my name is Pascal Baudar, P-A-S-C-A-L-B-A-U-D-A-R. I'm what you call a wildcrafter. Um, that means I kind of a forager with a little bit of ethics consideration about the environment. Like what I'm trying to do is really uh, work with nature and concentrate on a lot of plants that are non-native and invasive. And one of my goals is to create a cuisine that is beneficial for the environment. What was your journey to wild plants? It started with my grandma. When I grew up in Belgium, we were pretty much self-sufficient for, you know, I don't recall going to the market or I think my dad used to go buy meat, that was it. Everything got to come from our garden, but my grandma used to send me all the time to go collect some wild food too, like dandelion, stinging nettle, hazelnut, walnuts. And it was completely, completely normal at the time. Like there was not even a consideration that it's weird. I'm talking about the older generation, people that, you know, 70s and 60s, it was just a normal way to complement the diet, to just go into the wilderness, whatever wilderness was left, and pick up food. And a lot of those weeds, what they call weeds by the agriculture system, because they don't want people to pick them up, I guess. But a lot of those weeds are super plentiful. I mean, everywhere, it doesn't, you don't even need the forest or the wilderness, and they are extremely nutritious. So. It started with my grandma, and I really wanted to do as a kid what I'm doing right now, which is, you know, really dealing with wild plant and understand all the things you can do, and even be artistic with it. I think I'm pretty artistic. You know, I do my own pottery with wild clay. I do my own fibers and crawdash with wild plant. But nobody could teach me at the time in Belgium. There was no internet. I could not find any books about it. So I ended up going to the Academy of Fine Art. So I and look, being an artist, graphic artist. And I came back to Wild Food in 1999 because Y2K was about to happen and the end of the world was coming. So I decided to do a class with a gentleman called Christopher Nairish, he's in LA. He still teaches, he teaches like survival, you know, city survival, urban survival, but part of his curriculum is Wild Food. And I took a wild food class and I remember I showed up over there and after the class, I said, I want to do this with my life. It kind of like everything came back. My goal as a child really came back and I basically spent two years doing classes with anybody who could teach me. Like every weekend, I would spend Saturday and Sunday and I would do classes with survivalists, botanists, mushroom people, native people. I would even hang out at ethnic store. Like if there was a, you know, olives in the store, like in a supermarket, I would go to like ethnic supermarket. I would stand there, the olive, and when grandma was picking up olive, I would be like, please take me home. You know, like, show me what you're going to do. 
because we have a lot of olives in California, for example. So I spent two years doing that and, and really applied to my life to a point that I even spent a whole year living on wild food only. And then I realized very fast that if you are serious about it, about wild crafting or foraging, you understand it's really a food preservation. So it's really all about food preservation. Unlike to the store, you know, you can go to the store and buy tomatoes all year long. It's not normal. It's freaky. You know, people don't realize that. Wild food is not like that. Wild food will show up and will show up for maybe three or four weeks at different stages. Like the local black mass that we have in California, it shows up as a sprout, which you can use. Then a month later, you have all those greens and you can start using the leaves. You can start using the stem. Then at one point, you start flowering and you can start using the flowers and make some kind of condiments with the flowers. You can ferment the flowers and some of the leaves too. And then it turns into seeds, which you can then use. You know, so the plant will have a lifetime of three months and go to a different stage. And at every stage, you can preserve the harvest, including the roots. And it's true for every single wild food. You know, you can pick up walnuts and collect them when they're green and unripe to make pickled unripe walnuts. You can make nocino, which is a drink. And then you can wait for the walnuts to be ready. And then you can make pesto and, and you can preserve those walnuts. But it's all about food preservation. So I also spent another couple of years to really study traditional food preservation technique. And I also did the Master Food Preserver program at the University of California. So I realized that really, again, wild crafting was really about food preservation and about traditional food preservation technique. And I think what made me special from the start was that I was really applying those food preservation techniques to wild food. And I started sharing that. So how to make wine, how to make beer, how to do lactose fermentation, how to make your own vinegars, how to preserve the harvest through canning, pickling, dehydrating. There's probably like 50 different methods of food preservation techniques that exist. You pick up shepherd's pie, which is really a pie with meat in it. Well, the food preservation is really pasteurization and removal of oxygen. The shepherds had to go into the mountain for like a week or two. So the shepherd's pie was basically pasteurization of the meats put inside a pie. Then you close the dough, you pasteurize it again, but because it's closed, there is no more oxygen. And then your pie will last for close to a week without any refrigeration. So a lot of interesting stuff you realize, you know, when you study traditional food preservation technique. I really like unusual wild food. Like things that people won't touch or don't even look at, like insect honeydew, lurp sugar. I'm doing a lot of grains and seeds right now. Things that you find in your backyard and people would not even think of using because they think it's so difficult, but I'm proving it's super easy. So I'm kind of a weirdo in that sense. I like to find like unusual content, unusual wild food but also educating people and showing that it's plentiful, it's everywhere, food is everywhere. And giving an example of what you could do with it if you wanted to. When you're learning or applying these traditional fermentation and preservation techniques to plants that are somewhat unusual and might not be what you would expect, is it a trial and error or are you looking at 
older traditions of how they would use those specific plants and what techniques they would use on those specific plants? Well, I'm pretty sure they were used. That's the point. I, I cannot find the recipe, but I'm pretty sure they were used because in the old days, and you can go back in time, I do a lot of research, even in prehistoric time and, and Neolithic area and all this stuff. I'm sure they were used. It's just, we don't have the recipe anymore. So my job is basically to discover the past to a large degree and basically figure out how things were done. And I'm sure they were done. Lacto-fermentation of wild mustard and dandelion and all this stuff is actually pretty interesting, but you can go further and you can start mixing seeds to it, mixing wild seeds and mixing wild spices and nuts. I'm actually able to research it at that point. And I discovered that it was already done because now I have the key word I can find what it is. Or even if it was not done, I'm pretty sure I didn't invent anything new. It's really my job is to rediscover the past to a large degree, I think. And rediscover for me, what's exciting is we discover flavors that our ancestors used to eat or have or experience that you could not get anywhere in a modern restaurant or with a supermarket. And I'm pretty much going toward my own ethnicity. So I do a lot of research, mostly from Europe, prehistoric, from Middle Age and, and further, and also the Middle East, which is kind of my DNA, some of the two. Which is interesting. I mean, those are all the invasive plants that I find locally too. And I, I immediately got attracted to it as a forager. So I think we all, without knowing it, we can follow our DNA to a large degree. You know, if we really go deep into something. Do you start the process with the plant? Like, yes. Looking at what parts are edible. I'm a little bit different. And this is something that I tell my students, you know, when I do classes is I see a lot of people taking wild food and try to adapt it to a modern cuisine. So they are going to make nettle pasta or um, taking wild food and use it in a modern recipe. On my side, I'm completely different. I basically look at the plant and say, what do you want to be? So I'm really trying to zone into to the flavor and I'm not trying to like take that plant and change it into something else to adapt it to an existing recipe like soup or polenta or whatever. So I, I'm going to do crazy. I do a lot of side dishes and condiments and stuff like that. So I'm going to mix fermented mustard leaves with wild grain, but I'm going to mix that with the wild mustard condiment that I do using the same seeds from that plant. And then I'm going to be adding maybe mustard seed from another mustard that is like this or nuts. So I'm doing crazy little side dishes that are super tasty and interesting, but I don't do a lot of modern recipe. I don't do a lot of uh, recipe and adapt the wild food to it. I'm really trying to zone into the flavor actually of the thing. She's not always easy. And then you end up with things like doing pine cone syrup, Russian olive syrups, crazy sodas, marwat beer. And a lot of those things were done in the past. You know, marwat beer is probably was a classic in, in for Celt and Viking in the old days because this is what they were using. And I've seen you harvest wild yeast off of plants. Yes. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. I thought it was super difficult, but that's super easy. I'm going to show you wild yeast right now. There you go. I have two strawberries in a dish right there. And if you notice, there's a lot of white powder on it. And the white powder is 
every time you find something sweet, like a fruit or whatever, the white powder is composed of wax and wild yeast. So in my book, The Wild Crafting Brewer, I basically explain you just need to take a jar and you put 15% sugar, the rest is water, and you put a bunch of those grapes, berries, plums, anything that has a white bloom on it. In three days, that jar is about to explode. Yes, the yeast start eating the sugar and converting it to alcohol, and you get the fermentation gas that are about to explode, make the jar explode. And you can use that as a starter. I'm going to go get a bottle. I know we don't have video in the interview, so I'm going to go get a bottle of elderberry wine. And this one, this elderberry wine was done with wild yeast, and you can see on top, you can see all the fermentation gas escaping. So it's really nice and fermenting. It started on day four, which was kind of late, but I'm, I'm living in the mountains colder. So usually it takes two or three days, but here it took four or five days. I was getting very nervous because this thing was not starting. But you can see what thing it is. So this is the way people used to do it. And it's very different from what you buy at the store. You realize that all the wine that you buy at the store, the beer, are extremely civilized. Those wine and beer and sodas and crazy, sometimes I don't even know what to name it because I cannot put a label on it. It's a mix of beer and wine and made all in the same time, which is really what people used to do. They used to use different sources of sugar, plants and grains and whatever would be your flavor. There was no rule. Actually, the rule started in the, after the middle age. Every time you name something very specifically and give the rules, then you can tax it. It's always about the money. So then you can say, well, it's a wine. And a wine can only be made with grapes or it's a beer. And beer can only be made with hops and grains. And then you can tax it. But in the old days, it's just basically growing with what the environment would give them. And there was no label on it. it they were mixed up. They were mixed sugar sauce like molasses with honey, with berries and wild herbs and psychotropic herbs sometime or whatever, or mushrooms. When I work on my book, The White Crafting Guru, I basically went back to study Neolithic and what scientists will find in trees, in tombstone of what kind of liquid people were doing. I even had one of those archaeologists calling me, going like, hey, dude, what we're finding is what you do. So we're actually helping each other because they say, what's your process? Why do you do it? I said, well, it's just from an environment. And those flavors are funky. They're not civilized. And they're funky in a good way. I mean, people coming to my class like it because they are my public. They're looking for that. But if you were to serve some of those things to normal people, some people may not like it. And that's completely okay. How do you pair the yeast culture that you are producing with the fruit or whatever you are going to be making into a beverage? Because the yeast does impart a very different flavor, different types of yeast? Yes and no, not with wild yeast. It, it is the case with when you buy yeast, because it's really like one big strain of yeast that can add some specific flavor. But I've noticed for me with the wild yeast, and I've done beer with wild yeast from all kinds of different places, it doesn't change that much of flavor because wild yeast will have different culture anyway and would even contain acetobacter, which can turn your thing into vinegar over time. So what is very complex is just not one strain. It's a whole bunch of different things. However, that said, as much as possible, I will try to do a wine or a beer using the yeast coming from the ingredients. 
In my case, where's the elderberry wine? I use elderberry yeast. Because it's already there. I have nothing to do, really. If I do a wild beer, I'm probably going to use juniper berries. A lot of the plant that I use for brewing, such as mugwort, yarrow, actually has wild yeast on it. It's like the plants are begging to be used for brewing. But I don't have any rules. If I need a yeast starter from somewhere else, I think it's from somewhere else. I have personally not seen a dramatic change of flavor. And when you mention using traditional preservation techniques, so there's yeah. lacto-fermentation, there's brewing of vinegars and alcohol. What are some of the other techniques? Dehydration, I suppose. When you have canning, so you have yeast preservation, you have removal of oxygen, you have regular canning and, and water bath canning, you have high pressure canning, you have lacto-fermentation. If you take all the different fermentation, you also have soil fermentation, you have capture, you have all the organic different stuff. So you probably already have like 15 different ways of preserving fruits and fermentation. And you have making vinegar using acetobacter with local bacteria too. The dehydration, freezing, smoking, the list goes on. Let's say, as I said, I found like, I think it was 48 that I found. And then you go into the modern one, which will include irradiation, for example, waxing which is removal of oxygen. That's why they wax the fruits. So they look so good. It actually makes them keep longer. And waxing is actually an old one too. People used to put bee wax. Preserving in ashes or eggs, for example. Your eggs will stay for weeks or putting oil on, on a fresh egg or butter. And your eggs will keep for months. Crazy things. And some are really weird. Then the new one was that I found last year when I was doing research was those grapes preserving clay in Afghanistan. When they preserve uh, grapes for months, like six months, and they stay fresh, and you just put them in a container made of clay, like rough clay. And it's the perfect environment because they won't dehydrate, but oxygen can get in to some degree, but there's not enough oxygen to really spoil them. And you end up with those big masses of clay. You just crack them in these beautiful grapes, fresh after six months of being inside. This is prehistoric technology right there and then using clay to preserve food. You keep discovering like it's nonstop. You keep discovering stuff and like, wow, it's mind blowing. What you are harvesting and processing is all local. Yes. I mean, it's hyper local. I can go out and I can come back with 10 plants within two minutes. That would be edible. I mean, I'm surrounded with wild mustard over here. And mostly, I would say like 90% would be invasive. You know, if I was in LA, it would take me a few seconds to collect 10 things by just opening the door and going into a garden and come back and uh, probably will all be weeds. But this time of the year, Los Angeles will be sitting rains because we're entering the season rains time. Maybe berries. We have berries too. Like we have a lot of elderberries right now, current and all that stuff. It's, you know, what... I usually blow people's mind when they do a class because they realize that food is everywhere at any time of the year. And 80% can be used for culinary use. Not always edible, but can be used for culinary use. And in my opinion, only like 1% or 2% will kill you. And the rest is just boring. It's going to make you sick a little bit, maybe barf or whatever. And there's not that many plants that are really poisonous. Like in California, less than 10 probably. So if you learn those 10 plants first, then you can't guarantee you're never going to die, type of thing. The identification, I suppose, is quite key to learn those few that will kill you. Yes. 
Yes, but again, if you start with a question of span, then it, it makes it easier. People have it easier those days too. There is all kind of different things that I didn't have when I started. I mean, you can find groups online where you can post photos of like, what is it? Like on Facebook, you have a group called Available Plants or something like that, or Forish in California. You have apps. Those apps are pretty good, like 95% correct. And even if they're not correct, they will push you in the right direction. But like, I think this is a brassica. Do you see what I mean? And then you can go online. You can take your photo and go like, okay, Google image. And say, hey, show me an example of Black Master, for example. And then you can confirm. So you have so many different ways you can confirm all this stuff. In, in my days, it was mostly a person-to-person transmission of knowledge. But I must say that in the stuff I'm doing, transmission from person to person is still very important because frankly, when you start collecting seeds and grains, how do you identify the plant? There is nothing left. It's just, it's a dry thing, dry thing with pods. So it's a mix at this point. But I mean, all the main ones, like I would say, like all the main depot that everybody knows, like down the pastel wild radiation, all this stuff, you don't need anybody to teach you anymore. You can actually learn that by yourself and be pretty safe in the process. But when you start going into the exotic stuff, like Russian oil syrups and lump sugar, grains and seeds and crazy things like that, then yeah, good luck. Certain plant families too. When people are first starting to forage, I tend to discourage the carrot family. Like just stay away from that one for a little while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, because some of them are super good, some of them are super poisonous. But then a lot of the education comes into the food preservation process. That's where it really comes. And I do my living mostly doing webinars and teaching people lacto-fermentation of different wild foods, for example, or how to make wild beer and wine, how to make elderberry wine, how to make prickly pear wine, and the different techniques and the different, you know, the crazy wild beer, you can do a wild beer with mugwort, but you can do like a forest beer. And the forest beer, what may end up with 15 plants and mushrooms from the forest, including roots and grains. And why not? You know, shamanic beer. And then you go to the psychotropic stuff. I do shamanic beer. And when I was in Colorado, it's legal. And you can have plants like mugwort, hero, magic mushrooms. And you drink that and like, my God. But this is what people would have done in the past. This is... Drinking, for example, alcoholic beverage was not made for fun. Sometimes it was more from a religious perspective because your life can sometimes be miserable without all the comfort of modern society. I mean, it was not easy, I'm sure. And we didn't have any painkiller or anything like that. And being able to drink alcohol and suddenly your muscle hate goes away. You start feeling better. You start feeling happy. That's super valuable. And if you're a shaman, you can start making brews that will help healing people. So not only the brew itself is a painkiller, but you can add, you know, willow bark, which would be a type of aspirin. You can even add magic mushroom, which for some person will actually turn pain into pleasure to some degree. Kind of do a reverse. It's interesting. I have that. If I have pain, the mushroom actually will change it into pleasure. It actually makes it feel good, which is a weird one. And you can put all kinds of different healing plants in the brews. In the Middle Age, those used to be called wish brews, which were really medicinal brews. And the church made sure to get rid of those things because 
on top of it, I mean, the church was making money from taxes too, from the beers that are made with hops and grains. And hops is considered a donor. You probably will make less sins using a beer that is a donor, the drinking a lot of more water beer, which makes you more happy and more, uh, give you more sexual energy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I heard that hops are also, they have painkiller. Painkiller, but also antibacterial. It can act as a preservative as well for the beer. Yeah, but but so mugwort so woods mugwort. too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so in Seattle, and I mean, I think all the main plants that were used to make beer were actually preserved the food. In my book, I have like several categories. I have like what I call the Trinity, is like the main one. And then after that, there is all kinds of different ones that were used, like whorehounds, which is very bitter. If you use mugwort and horn together, it kind of creates a wild IPA, very bitter. And mugwort, is that Artemisia vulgare or Artemisia absinthium? Does not. I actually use Artemisia dubliciana, the local mugwort. It grows like a weed in California. It's a native plant, but it grows like a weed. It actually has more flavor than the one that we use in Europe. But when I was in Vermont, I, you know, I found the one from Europe, which is kind of considered invasive over there, uh, Artemisia vulgaris. Artemisia absinthium can be used too and has been used. It's a bit stronger, but there was the one that was used to make absent too. So they will, I mean, they all have been used to make booze. And when I was doing my research, it was fascinating because I don't know of any bitter plant. If the plant was bitter and was not toxic, I would find it in recipes. It's interesting. And beer is bitter. Beer is really like a bitter thing. And then you have also bitters. I could write a whole book on making bitters. You can make bitters for medicinal use. You can make bitters for drinks, like for flavors. I probably have a list of 20 books I could still write. So I wish I was like 20 years younger than I could write them. When you said that you use lacto-fermentation of yeah. all different types of plants, very often brassicas are used for lacto-fermentation, but right. you're also doing greens and other plant families. What do you and mushrooms too? And what do you use to get enough liquid? Do you add any water? No. Are you using? I'll show you an example. So I have a jar in front of me. I explained it because this is not visual. So I have a jar in front of me, and it's a jar of fermented mustard roots. And if you notice, the brine goes halfway. So not everything is under the brine, which is a big crime in like fermentation. People go like it has to be. There's a rule. The fermentation gods say everything has to be under the brine. And if you notice, this is my fermented mustard leaves, and there is no brine. No brine whatsoever. Yeah, maybe a drop, not even a drop. So here's the secret. The secret is you actually have to work with your ferment. When I do my fermented wood, the end product is the brine. I'm using that for soup stock. I can flavor tofu with it. I can do all kinds of different stuff. And basically, it was the only way for me to extract flavor from those roots. This, is, this was my experimental stuff. Those roots are too tough. You cannot eat them. Those are must, wild mustard, wild red dish. It's like so fibrous, it's impossible to eat. But you scratch them with a knife and you smell it. It's like a world of incredible smell and flavor. It's like pungent and smells so good, earthy. So by crushing them and putting some liquid and salt, I'm basically fermenting them, and the lacto-fermentation will extract the flavor into the brine. 
I don't want to put too much brine because if I put too, too much brine, I'm going to delete the flavor. So what I do is I basically shake the content. So every day, twice a day, I'm going to shake that content. Sometimes I even reverse the jar and leave it for a few hours reverse. And what's happening is the content becomes acidic. And by shaking it, you put that acidity everywhere. And there is no way that this thing can rot. After 10 days or 15 days, depending if it's cold or fermentation, you get no more fermentation gas. That's where you put them in the fridge. It is guaranteed to never mold because it's too acidic. Your pH is already at 3.3 at that point. So those mustard uh, leaves are two years old. So you can see that the leaves even have reabsorbed whatever liquid was there. I'm aging stuff for five years right now. Uh, and then I'm starting to do some extreme aging. I have some pickle that I'm aging for 20 years. Those are for my kids. I may not be alive when they're done. Those are recipes from the Middle East where you preserve garlic and vinegar for like 20 years to 30 years. Then the older they are, the better they are. You cannot eat them young. They grow young. So it's interesting. It changes. Yeah. Same thing. You cannot put down brine, for example, a paste. This is a fermented or wild garlic. Local wild garlic, it's basically a spicy paste. So it's 75% local wild onion and garlic. And the rest was just a habanero powder. So the shit is hot. I cannot shake it because it's so tough, but you can stir it. So twice a day, in the morning and the evening, I stir it. And by stirring it, I distribute the acidity. And after 10 days or 15 days, when there is no more fermentation gas, it's put in the fridge. There's nothing to do. No brine, it's just going to keep forever. This is become, become more and more sour and flavor will change over time, which sometimes can be a good thing, sometimes can be a bad thing. That's where the experimentation come in. So I've eaten mustard that was fermented for three years. It's an aqua taste, but you can still play with it. You can still take that mustard after three years, it's okay. This is not the ingredient I have to work with. You can still add, if it's sour, you can add a little bit of seasoning vinegar, for example that will contain maple syrup or whatever. You always the freedom to create at any stage. And I don't have the rule that you cannot cook a ferment. Why not take those leaves that are three years old and cook them? I always get shit when I do that. Why would someone take something fermented and cook it? Because you're killing all the bacteria. I'm like, because I don't care. I'm about flavors. So those people are so obsessed sometimes. But guess what? What about the sourdough? Oh my God, what a crime. You're cooking all those bacteria to make a bread. You see, I mean, people yeah. have cook with stuff all the time. You only use source stuff for cooking. But if you take like a lacto fermentation, it's like, oh, like, <laughs> wake up. In terms of the process, what's the difference between doing a alcoholic brew and a vinegar? There's different ways you can do it. But if you really want to do it the natural way, is you basically only use wild yeast. If you use wild yeast, there is always acetobacter. Those are the bacteria that turn into vinegar. And it's a normal, regular process, meaning by that the yeast will start taking the sugar and convert it into alcohol. And when the alcoholic fermentation is over, then the acetobacter will take over. And you can say, well, that's not really true because then in the old days, wine will always turn into vinegar over time. And that was not always the case. Well, you can only make vinegar. This is what a lot of people don't understand. You can only make vinegar if your beverage has an alcoholic content between 3 and 9% alcohol. So if I make my elderberry wine, the recipe will ask for up to 12 to 14% alcohol. 
itself is non-alternative to vinegar. Now, in the old days, it may turn into vinegar if you were storing wine into a clay container, like people used to do sometimes, because eventually the alcohol will evaporate through the clay. And when the alcohol will go down to 9%, then the acetobacter will take over. Which is how I found out that the amphoras were, in the old days, were lined up with pine resin to make them waterproof, which ended up using pine resin on my own pottery. And the pottery that I make locally right now, pine resin is super beautiful. You get whole shades of brown and black, and this is it, it's waterproof. And it doesn't taste like resin because I did that at super high temperature. So it becomes a glaze, like a glaze, but it works as a pit fire. So you can, you can make a pit fire and use pine resin to make your, your dishware uh, waterproof. It's super interesting. I saw that you also would use pine resin as a glue. Yeah. I'm showing a teapot right now. And that's a little teapot. And you see the, the branch is actually using the uh, pine pitch. I guess in the pottery, I'm really using the whole environment. Waving a top for the teapot, I'm using a stone and a moth. We can use mugwort or whatever. And this is done with the gold clay. The handle is made with burned manzanita from the forest fire. Wow. It's gorgeous. And you're eating local ingredients out of the dishes that came from yeah. your local environment. Yes. So this is, I call that the, the pinion pine needle teapot. So I actually made pinion pine needle and the clay come from the same location where the pinion pines are growing. The stone come from the same location. So with the branch that's used, this is, this teapot is a terroir in itself. Everything is, and I can even pick up the moss from the side of a tree. It's called yeah. old, old man beards, which is a non-toxic moss. You have to research that too, because some moss can be very toxic. And in California, we have one main one that's a wolf lichen. I use muscle lichen, this is actually a lichen. Wolf lichen, which was used to poison wolves. So you put that inside the rabbit or the deer that was used. So, you know, and the wolf will eat it and they die. Wow. I know like mushroom people are already weird, but when you meet the lichen people and the, <laughs> and the moss people, oh my God, this is where you go to like unknown territory people. They're not normal. <laughs> <laughs> What about water plants? Water plants? Mm -hmm. What do you mean water plants? Like seaweed? Like cattails and watercress. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I use that, yeah, that all the time. See, I don't use the, the ones from the sea because of my environment. I used to live in Los Angeles and there is no way I would touch the water. I know what's in it. I actually study what's in it. And I tell you, like studying wildcrafting is a good study of the environment and you realize how disgusting humans can be mostly in the sea of Los Angeles. Yeah, I would not touch anything from the research I've done. I would not touch anything below San Francisco. Okay. I mean, in terms of foraging, I, I would not touch seaweed. I would not touch anything below San Francisco. But fresh water? Fresh water, yes. I, I live in the mountain right now. We have fresh water. I've made beer with rainwater and all kinds of stuff. I've made snow beer. Really? Not, not yet. Not yellow snow beer. It's just, <laughs> just snow beer. Many better use snow for the water, so it's nothing special. Don't do yellow snow beer. It's not. Good no. <laughs> but in terms of water plants, yeah. What are some of your favorite water plants to forage? 
I still see what the question is a good one. Cattail is definitely one that I use a lot too. And you can totally ferment cattail. Like you will not even know you were not using sauerkraut. But my ferment is usually like 50% cabbage and 50% cattail. And you will not even know the cattail is in it. Like it's a natural and it contains a lot of starch and sugar. What part of the plant? Uh, the shoot. Okay. The young shoot. I mean, I could use probably the roots. When I was in LA, I was very careful about the roots because of pollution. And actually the main problem was homelessness because every time I would go in nature and throw the river, I would find like homeless camp. And that's where they clean themselves or leave themselves on all kinds of different stuff. So I would not want to use those roots. But in the mountains, I could do it. And actually, I've used the roots. Yeah, I did in 2016. It's my first book. Uh, I extracted the starch from roots. Uh, and you could brew, you can make beer, but the starch is the stuff that you can turn into sugar. And you can actually brew with cattail too. I've made cattail beer. Uh, what else? The main interest for me is also most in Southern California is what you find alongside the water. Because again, at any time of the year, if you find a source of water, you always gonna find green plant. Mm -hmm. Another plant that I really, really like that grows in the water is water mint. Super invasive, can really take over an environment. But it's super yummy. It's one of my favorite mint. What do you like to do with it? Brewing tea, sodas, dehydration, use as a spice, organic kind of stuff like that, nothing special. Anything that you can do with a mint, really. It's just that the flavor. When you say a soda, what is that process? Making a soda is the simplest process you can have. I mean, you can use white sugar if you wanted to. You basically make a beverage that tastes a little bit too sweet for your taste. And then you add some commercial yeast, if you want to. You can add a little wild yeast starter. And if it is too sweet, you know that the yeast is going to eat the sugar, so it will come back down with the amount of sweetness. And then I just stick a couple of water mint twigs or regular mint or peppermint twigs inside the bowl. And I let it ferment for four or five days and I have a soda right there. And then you can add lemon, you can add ginger to it, you can print, you can add pine needles, you can do whatever you want. But the process is that simple. One of the feedback I get from people when they come to my workshop is this, they realize like how simple this shit is. We make things so complicated now, like making beer is so complicated. They write like huge book on the process of making beer and you have to buy all this expensive equipment. But people in the old days used to make beer in pot and you can totally do it. And some of those beer were not aged for months, they were aged for days. If you ferment something for five or six days, you already get 5% alcohol. This makes you happy. We are very good about making things complex. And then once things are complex, we decide to write the books on the rules. Then we can tax the liquid too. And you make charts and laws that you cannot make anything different. Or you cannot call it a beer or wine or whatever. But I like to go back on time and go back into anarchy and say, we can do whatever we want. And it, uh, it's going to taste awesome and better than what you do. Yeah, I had a beer expert, like a beer taster who came to one of my class and tasted my mobile beer and said, this is better than any beer I ever had. Nice. And on the reverse, I had a group of people who didn't know that they would be served wild food for lunch. So those are regular, regular, regular people. Those are not my public. Those are not people who come to my class knowing what to expect. And I didn't even know they didn't know. So they were like, what the hell is this mugwort beer? And like 50% of the people will not like it and 50% will love it. So because they're so used to their Budweiser, sorry, Bud, it's not a Budweiser. 
it's not a corona. This is what your ancestor will drink. You know, welcome to my world. If you don't like it, leave. <laughs> <laughs> we are not civilized here. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> when you're collecting seeds and making yeah. condiments, the condiments that you're making are combining, I suppose, vinegars that you're also brewing from yeah. your environment. Are you doing additional fermentation? I've done crazy things. I've actually taken your vinegar and pasteurized it. So I kill all the bacteria, add sugar, and then we ferment it with what it needs. That's a twist. Yeah. <laughs> going back to alcohol using the vinegar as a base. And it did work. Although the yeast was going like, what the hell is going on? It was not an easy fermentation. <laughs> and was it worth it if I recall? Because I did that for a while ago. Not really, but it was interesting. I was able to do it. It was a weird drink. <laughs> I call it fermented vinegar. <laughs> so, I mean, you can go like, you know, when you learn all the principles of fermentation, all the lacto-ferment that I do is never a complete process. I once had this something like fermented mustard leaf after one month, so two months or three months. I'm tasting it and I go like, okay, what am I going to do for that specific class? Or I'm inviting people to eat or if people eating at my place, what am I going to do? And I always do something different. If I deal with a lot of American, I'm going to use seasoned vinegar, which is sweet. Why? Because Americans are not used to the sourness of lactoferment. When I used to work with restaurants, the chef asked me to do lactoferment food for them. And their public was like, yeah. And the chef said, you know, they don't like it. I said, well, it's your public American. Well, yeah. So okay. Then I replaced the brine with seasoned rice vinegar. And everybody went wild going like, this is so good. I really love those lacto-ferment. I'm like, it's vinegar. But you see, by just changing it, you adapt that ferment for their taste. Mm -hmm. You know, so I would serve the, I would serve the fermented leaf with Dijon mustard, but I would make the Dijon mustard with the same mustard that I picked up in the wild. So it becomes more of as a vinegar based thing. If I deal with Asian publics, then I can, I know I can go for those crazy flavors. They're like. Yeah, including texture, for example. Americans don't like to chew. Something is chewy. They go like, ooh, it's chewy. And in different cultures, completely fine to chew. They're like, oh, yum. You know, Asian culture chewing is really part of the experience. Even in Europe, it took me a while to get used to chewing. So if I don't cook my mustard, I have a chewy ferment. If I cook my mustard before I ferment it, I have a tender ferment. It's the same fermentation, same ingredient. The difference is I cook it first and not cook it first. So if I go to the American, I would use the cooked one. If I have a mix and I have a lot of different people from different countries and different ethnic and all that, then I'm going to go, you know what? I'm going to go for like the chewy one. Yeah. It's, so yeah, you can play with all this stuff. And I guess if you're doing these workshops all at different times, you've got so many different plants that are going to be yeah. offered from different seasons. And I suppose in California, you also have plants that are growing all year round. Yeah. Like fur, you can collect fur at any time of the year. I use white fur for flavoring. It's like tangerine. However, the flavor would change during the year. In springtime, it's going to be more peppy, more young, more lemony. And later on during the year, it's becoming more, I call that noble, like more complex flavor, more experience to the flavor, you know. It's interesting. Do you collect any pollen? Yeah, pine pollen, cattail pollen. Those are the easiest ones. I guess you could collect any pollen that you want. You could do that. Uh, oh, yeah. 
Super intuitive. It's like licorice. Valsano. Valsano pollen. Super expensive, by the way. The price of Valsano pollen is more expensive than gold, by the way. Yeah, people don't know that. It's a pain. You have to like grab the flowers into a paper bag and let them drop the pollen, which is really tiny. It takes an incredible quantity to get tiny amount. And usually people fake it and they use the, the dry flowers. But if you really use the pollen, it's more expensive than gold. But it's so potent. It's incredibly potent. And it's an invasive. It's super invasive in California. Yeah. You see, it's so interesting for me. I do follow the language of invasive, non-native and all that, but really, I really kind of like don't care, kind of. Mm-hmm. Meaning by that, I don't associate any emotional issues that some people have. You go to groups about invasive plants on Facebook or social media, and I call those eight groups because they're very emotional about it. Like, yeah, kill it, spray Roundup on it. You guys are so ridiculous. Use the plant. Do something good with it because right now there are no positive solutions. We have thousands of makers of mustard in LA, thousands, tens of thousands of makers. All those mustard are crops in different countries. The only thing people are going to do locally is they're going to spray chemical to get rid of it, which really poisons the environment. Or they do habitat restoration, that means they grab everything and throw away the resource. And I'm going like, this is fucking nuts. This is food. Like you have people. In LA, we cannot afford their organic food. And you're throwing crops. You're re-throwing away crops under the label that they are invasive. Meanwhile, wheat has destroyed 72 million acres of native flora and land. That's okay because that's agriculture. That's okay. That's not invasive. But that was done. Well, something that I do like about your books and the content that you provide is that it's showing people that they can use these plants and that there are a lot of delicious things that they can do with them. So that instead of seeing them as the enemy, you're then seeing them as an opportunity. Yeah, that's the way. I, yeah, it's really exactly, you know, it's an opportunity. It's one way to, to add to the diet. And those, many of those plants actually, and that came from Europe, from where I grew up. So I know those are the plants that my grandma used to grow and say, go collect those for food. And also in the Middle East, there's a big tradition in the Middle East of using those plants. You know. And a lot of the seeds are used as spices. Yeah. So yes. they'll impart a lot of flavor. Yeah, you go to a Middle Eastern store, you basically have a whole aisle that's just different seeds and herbs. And you find the kind of foliage. You might find like the coral, the yarrow, you might find the, the mugwort, just the roots. You find the fennel seeds. It's all there. And I'm not making a dent, by the way. My job, speaking of seeds, I'm really planting seeds in people's head. So maybe somebody will wake up and have enough power or a position that they can actually say, you know, we can do something. Why don't we collect all this black mustard and make digital mustard with it that we are going to sell? And all this money will go back to saving the environment and planting native plants, for example. It could be done. But... I'm just me, little me somewhere. I don't have that power in any way, shape, or form, but I have the power to plant seeds in people's head. What is your example? And I'm really strongly think that uh, foraging and white crafting is important and can be not only sustainable, but can be beneficial. I already know that 99.999999% of the population has zero interest in foraging and white crafting. They won't do it. They don't care. They, they go to work. They want to go 
to the store and get their food. They have zero interest in forging. So there is a room for forges and workcrafter, and we can do, and I think it would be awesome if we do it, but if we do it with the viewpoint that we're actually going to have the environment. Because we're not the ones fucking up to the environment, the other people do. And we have to take responsibility for that. I mean, I remember driving in Minnesota and I drove for seven hours in the field of corn and soy. There is no environment left. I mean, it's nothing, nothing left. It's just corn and soy. If you want to find something, you have to go to the ditch, but there is so much chemical, you don't want to use something from there. And those are the people who go to the store. And sometimes they give you shit, they're like, oh, foraging, you stay from nature. It's like, oh, come on. So I think as foraging and workcrafter, we do have that responsibility to make up for their lack of responsibility and really interact with the environment in such a way that it is beneficial because sustainable is not good enough anymore. So when companies say we're sustainable, it means shit to me. We cannot be sustainable. When somebody says sustainable, I'm like, dude, you're lazy. It should be beneficial at this point. I like in the idea of foraging, I understand the need for responsible harvesting of native plants. But when it comes to invasives, they're just an opportunity. And it's like you said, a lot of those plants came over as food plants from people who brought them because they were familiar with them and used to eating them. So there's so much potential there. Those are colonizers plants. Let's eat them, get rid of them. But you know, it's interesting that when I was in Colorado, they really do a lot for the environment in Colorado. But in the same time, in my opinion, their view of nature for some degree is to turn the environment into a museum. So they have this program called um, Green Spaces or Open Spaces. And it's everything but open, meaning that it's open because you, you have to follow the trails. But you have barbed wire on, on each side of the trails with signs everywhere saying you cannot go there, you know, habitat sensitive habitat or whatever, and then you look at it in 98% of invasive food. It was like bullshit. I mean, sometimes they are right. You went to mountain and, and those areas are pristine, but in some area you go like habitat, sensitive habitat, you go bullshit. It's just like 90% invasive, curly dark, pepper weed. I recognize all those ones because I deal with all those invasive and garlic mustard, and we should be able to go over there and use them. Yeah. And if people knew that they could, I think that's yeah. a big one as well. So many people don't realize that they're surrounded by food. Yeah, they don't know that they don't. I and mean, that's why I'm just saying like foraging can be beneficial because 99.9999999% of the population has zero interest. Zero. When I pick up some stuff from the wrong people look at me like, what are you doing? Which is why I travel with a camera. When somebody looks funny at me, I just take my camera and do a fake photo and go, oh, it's a photographer. <laughs> And then they leave me alone. But I think part of it is just fear. There is a a detachment from our environment. So people are afraid to harvest something in case it's poisonous because they don't know. I think if they knew, they might be more open to it. And I think that that is something that is starting to grow in popularity. People are starting to gain interest in eating local and harvesting their own food. Eating local is usually farming, really. which is also like, I mean, if you look at farming, it's really growing invasive plant on native land. So you still destroy the native flora and fauna. How come you cannot go to Whole Foods and say, I want two pounds of acorn? People would say, well, if we start eating the native plant, well, what if we were growing those native plants instead of growing those non-native plants? 
you will actually help them in the process. Europe, you know, all the forests are pretty much gone because of agriculture. I find it interesting sometimes that the farmers or the people, depending on farming, suddenly say that you should not go into the environment and take things, but they are the one which really, if you think about it, they are cre creating more damage using the diet and the existing, existing food system. They really damage the environment by using that, but they don't tell you, oh, you should not pick elderberries. Come on. So it's controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I use a lot of native plant, I will plant them. So I've planted elderberries. I've planted all the different sages. I've planted mugwort fields. I've planted cattail. I've planted all kinds of different stuff. I've planted, you know, black walnut tree. I would say like 100% of my foraging is pretty much done on private property, unless I deal with super endangered plant. Then I don't care. If I go into the Angeles forest and I see Mediterranean mustard or black mustard growing, my God, I'm helping the environment by removing it. A friend of mine was picking up nasturtium, like a whole field of nasturtium, which can be invasive locally. And the rancher showed up and basically made him throw everything back. And you go like crazy, why, you know, the rancher should be educated on these things too, I think. Absolutely. A lot of them don't even know the plants that are there and exist. Instead of fighting against people who forage or want to connect with the wilderness, they should actually create programs where people learn how to eat those invasive plants and do something that is positive and remove them from the environment. I tried to have a permit at one point for a specific section of the Angeles forest. I have a permit to pick up only your native plant and their solution was to ignore me for five years. I kept going at it and kept going at it and I never got any beep. I never got any answer. I call, I send emails, I send letters, I did everything. And the solution was to don't deal with me. They didn't want to deal with me. They didn't want to say yes. They didn't want to say no. They just didn't want to deal. So their solution was to like put it somewhere and hide it. Some people who make a living working with the rangers and teaching people. And they're paid to teach people how to interact correctly with nature, for example. And what are the non-native and invasive plants and what you can do with them. I think that would be so cool. I think especially the what you can do with them, because the identification is really important. Yeah. But I find in the foraging movement, there's so much about identifying the plants, but then there's yeah. not enough on what you can do with it. So bringing in, like you do, bringing in the traditional techniques of what people did with some of these plants before and showing yeah. people that it can taste good, that these plants can provide all kinds of interesting nutrients and flavor potential is really exciting and inspiring. And I think a lot of people who start foraging, you know, don't continue. I remember my early class were mostly with survivalists. Most survivalists are not really like the best cook type of thing. So they will boil things. I remember this person who made crackers just of curly dog seeds. It was the most disgusting thing I ever ate. <laughs> But, you know, then she added sugar to it and then everybody was munching on it and going, mm, nice. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it was like the grossest cracker I ever ate in my life. So what do you do with curly dock seeds? I'm actually going back to all the seeds and grains right now. It could be like maybe a next book project. And I'm going back because not enough is done with them. 
I look at curly dog seeds and they, they mostly, uh, they kind of boring to be honest, so far. I, I said they kind of boring so far because I have to like go back and see if we can do something else. But it's mostly an additive, like a floor additive. You make a bread and you put like 20% or 15% is going to look like a super beautiful, primitive bread. Like it's an aesthetic more than anything else. And it's adding fibers and it could be viable in a survival situation. I was talking to my dad during World War II. Bread were probably composed of like 30% to 40% sawdust and the rest was wheat. So it fills your stomach, but you're using 40% less wheat. Wow. So curly dog could be that way, for example. I go back to it. I know we did something at the time that was kind of interesting is we add sugar. So you add a lot of sugar water to the curly duck and then you pan roast it and it becomes kind of like a tiny little rice crispy. It's a texture thing. It's very interesting. <laughs> then you can use that for plating if you're a chef you make, to make a dish very pretty. So it's crunchy curly duck. So there is possibilities yeah. of the really things. <laughs> well, another one that I wondered about because lamb's quarter grows so yeah. abundantly and it's so closely related to quinoa and auric. Yeah. So what would you do with lamb's quarter or lamb's quarter seeds? Well, what we did in the past was seed cakes. Okay. So you can mix them with eggs, for example. I mean, like quinoa, you have to prepare the seeds correctly. I use them when we made like econ burgers, we will put like all kinds of different seeds. It was kind of like a vegan burger type of thing. With acorn mushrooms and lamb squatter seeds, all that. I use seeds a lot as an additive to things. I mean, I do a lot of ferment and I have seeds in it and grains in it because it's nutritious. You don't even know they're there. I put three. Make sure you want what I have in my hand is a jar that contains fermented wild radish fruits and wild radish leaves. The spice are curry like, and it looks like a mess of little cubes with green stuff, but there's probably like 10% of wild seeds and grains in it. It smells incredible, very curry, garam. So it's kind of like Asian spices, but it's all wild grains and seeds. You barely see them. People don't realize that seeds can have a lot of flavors. I did a post on Instagram like a couple of days ago about all the different mustard seeds. People think that mustard seeds taste like mustard, but no, it's the exception. Only the black mustard and not the Chinese mustard taste spicy. The other one tastes like hazelnuts, walnuts. They're very nutty, nutty flavor. Yes, we have the tumbleweed mustard over here, and it tastes exactly like hazelnuts. And then I'm going to roast them, and then it can bring like a completely different flavor profile. So I use specifically tumbleweed mustard because it's a fantastic flavor combination without ferment. Curry, nutty, hazelnuts, it's really fantastic. And then I use some that don't have any flavor, like cheatgrass, which is the most hated plant in California. People don't know that, but it's a hunter-gatherer grain from Europe. It's forgotten grain. It's, people only see it as an invasive. They have no idea that the grain was actually edible. You have to boil it. You boil that grain for 50 minutes. It looks like the most beautiful red rice. When you're eating the seeds and grains of invasive plants, that also reduces the spread. Yeah, but you're not making a dent. Me by myself. <laughs> I'm not. You get hundreds of thousands of acres of cheap grass locally. That thing is taking over, but... It's a hunter-gatherer grain from Europe. And, and that's an opportunity when you have a lot of it growing. Yeah. If you were planting that field in order to obtain yeah. a lot of the grain, 
it would be a lot of work, whereas there it's growing as a volunteer. Yeah, so this is a good example. It's a whole plastic oh bag, like grocery bag, and it's full of cheap grass that it took me three minutes to collect. I gave those to a famous restaurant in California called Ennaka, Japanese restaurant. And they were using the most heated plant in California as a beautiful grain in their dish because they like to use local product. So they were using it for plating to make it very beautiful. And people were like, what is that? And they're like foxtail. I mean, they, most people call it foxtail. And it was really interesting dichotomy because this was the most unwanted grain that nobody wants. People don't even know it's a grain, but only the rich people can afford it. <laughs> because, I mean, going to a NACA is probably going to cost you at least $600 per person type of thing. So they're basically paying to eat the most common unwanted plant locally. But as a forager, you have the opportunity because the possibility is there to just harvest it yourself. <laughs> yeah. And you have to be very careful as a forager. I'm very careful not to spread those seeds around. Yeah. Like the last class, we tested Russian olives. And I was like, going like, okay, people, give me back. I had to put in just to get back all the, the pits. The pits, yeah. Because if it grows up. I thought it was not in Southern California, actually, because it's super invasive in Colorado. Yesterday, I went to the store and guess what? I passed by and I see on the side, Russian olives, three. First one, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even know this was here. Oh, it is already here in the desert. I love using it. I actually love using Russian olives. What's the scientific name? Approximately. Like, what's the family? It has nothing to do with olives. It tastes like dates. They're very sweet. The only reason they call olives is because they can't look like small olives. Okay. And they grow like small olives. Elidnus angustifolia. And I found that out from the National Invasive Species Information Center. <laughs> One of the first things when I go into a new environment, and I was in Colorado, I show up there, I travel all year long last year in the RV. I'm always looking for two things, salt and sugar. If I have salt, I can do lacto fermentation. And if I have sugar, I can do yeast fermentation. Okay. So finding salt and sugar in the wild. And I found the sugar mostly in the rich and olive because they're very sweet. So okay. I basically, I boil them and then I strain them. And then I take the sweet boiling water and keep boiling it until I get molasses at the end. And the molasses is actually, in my opinion, more delicious than maple syrup. Wow. Yeah, I have a jar. I can have a jar. So this is your Russian olive syrup. And I found that it's super medicinal for inflammation. So I'm actually taking it. But it tastes better. And it's more complex than maple syrup. It's interesting. Wow. And again, this is one of those, like, how come people don't do that? Yeah. How come even chefs locally don't use that in their, their cuisine? Chefs should be using this stuff. I've seen you use LARP sugar as well. What exactly yeah. is that? I don't think that we have that insect here. Where are you located? Quebec, Canada. Yes, to cold. It's basically a little insect that has a symbiotic relationship with eucalyptus, specifically the blue gum eucalyptus. When we imported that tree from California, I think the tree was supposed to be used for railway, but it didn't work because it splits. But eucalyptus loves Southern California. So they go everywhere. They actually consider kind of invasive too. But they imported the fly with it unknowingly. So this little fly, what it does is it deposits little eggs on the leaves and you have a tiny larvae that sucks the juice of the eucalyptus and poop sugar. So it's basically sweet sugar poop. 
it's native food in uh, Australia. Okay. So if they were going on a long journey, they would collect all those from the leaves. And when it's still a bit wet in the morning or whatever, and make a boil out of it, it will be a pearl bar because it's composed of starch and sugar. You will find different types of similar honeydew coming from different kinds of flies in different regions of the world, including the Middle East. And some experts think that the manna from heaven in the Bible is actually that, because at one point it falls on the ground, and the ground is covered of sugar and starch, which is what bread is made of. And you can make them into tiny bread if you wanted to. So some experts think this is the manna from heaven that's was falling from the sky. The flavor profile when you dry it is exactly like Rice Krispie. You will eat that as a cereal, you will think it is Rice Krispie. It's the same crunchiness, it's the same flavor. But you have all kinds of different honeydew. It's not something unusual. Sometimes in California, people park their car and their car become all sticky. Well, if they look around and make sure nobody's there and they start licking their car, they're going to realize it's sweet. So those will be from aphids. So some aphids can also do that. Insects are the same way too. You know, not a lot of forage are dealing with insects, but there's a lot of very edible insects you find in the wild. And some of them are really invasive, like the garden snails. If you take a garden snail and you shake it and then you listen to it, it usually goes It's because it comes from France. So they're not native. The story is a guy who came from San Francisco during the bull rush and had the bright idea, was French, had the bright idea of like selling this to people as a delicacy, but nobody wanted it. So they released it and you know, you find garden snails everywhere. When I was in Vermont, they were really trying to not have any worms because worms are not native. And worms can destroy the environment. They definitely change it. And for farming, they're actually importing worms and you have even worm farms. It's interesting. Where you have saved the bees, but the bees are really not native. The native bees didn't make any honey. Mm-hmm. It's so complex. The pollinator thing is fascinating. I found yeah. this year in our region, there was massive beehive die-off. But I found that in my immediate region, the native pollinators are just booming. So the orchards around here didn't necessarily take a big hit, even though the hives were mostly dead because there was enough habitat for the native bees. Yeah. But nobody, they're not interested in native bees because they don't make honey. <laughs> really? It's all about the money again. I mean, you do have people, I care about the native bees, but... They care about it when the hives are failing. So when the beehives are failing and all of the apple orchards around here are entirely yeah. dependent on the native bee population, nah, then they care about it. That's interesting. <laughs> when I say like, you know, love sugar is it's like poop, people go like, well, you look at lactofermentation, you know what? Lactofermentation is, it's an insect excretion that means it's a pee or poop. Same thing with alcohol. Sorry, your beer. Everything is super organic. Honey is bee vomit. The yeast will actually eat the sugar and excrete, we use the word excrete, alcohol. Yep. So it's basically changing the sugar to alcohol, but you can call it different names if you wanted to. But excrete is more civilized. But, every, <laughs> but everything is really very organic like that. Some people say, well, insect poop. I'm like, do you like honey? <laughs> do, you like a, do you like drinking beer? It's just what's familiar. Yeah. People don't want to know anyway. <laughs> there was a restaurant was using that love sugar and call it uh, uh, forest sugar. It's better for marketing. 
and then said poop. What are you eating? What are you eating? Oh, fresh sugar. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, commercializing it. So how can people find your work and your books? Right now looking located in the middle of nowhere. I'm like a nor and a half from Los Angeles. So mostly webinars, and I, I basically just advertise my webinars on my social media. And also, to be honest, on my social media, I do share everything. I share recipes. Everything I do, I share, share, share. I don't try to, like, keep stuff for myself. I like books because everything is there. You know, you can go through it. Social media is more touched. How to find stuff. You have a post on social on Instagram from two years ago. At least you got 600 posts in between. There is no table of content. How are you going to find it? So books are still valuable, in my opinion. And your books are beautiful. The oh, images you. are gorgeous. Everything's laid thank out you. clearly. Yeah, I used to be an artist and photographer, so that helps. But I use natural daylight. So everything I use is daylight. There is no equipment. Like, if you look in the back of me, you see my camera and you see a window. Mm -hmm. This is where I do my photo. Oh, wow. So there's nothing complicated there. Everything is just done with daylight. And you do give some in-person seminars and tastings for people who are more local? Sometimes. I, I used to do that full-time, but I basically, I, I travel for the whole year. So it was more difficult to do. And also we had the COVID. I could not give live classes anymore in the Los Angeles area. So I was like, okay. And I discovered the Zoom and the webinar. So that opened the uh, possibilities of going anywhere and still being able to teach. And also being able to teach people anywhere, like people from anywhere can tune into your webinars. Yeah, exactly. I would say 50% of my public is from Europe and Middle East and crazy countries like far away, like China and stuff and Russia. And I had no idea. We can do the first webinar and I did it for like 25 people. And I put a limit of 25 people and I think I sold out in 20 minutes. I was like, oh my God. That and I had no idea that I had all those people from Europe who have my book who were like, yes, finally we can have a class with the guy type of thing. I was like, it was very really humbling. Like, wow. The other thing is your pottery is available. Yeah. Is there a separate website for that? Yeah. I have a website called ceramics.com. Okay. My uh, social media account on Instagram is wildcraftedceramic. Okay. I'll put all of the links in the show notes so that people can find it all. So if there are any other ones as well, you can send them to me. Yeah, I have uh, Urban Outdoor Skills, which is my main site for classes. So my Urban Outdoor Skills is more like me as a forger. And then Pascal Boulos Ceramics is about the pottery that I create. But they kind of mix together because for me, pottery, I'm basically more and more creating my own little universe with wild crafting and ranches and stones and clays. So I'm like a kid. I'm creating my own little tiny universe and having fun in the process. <laughs> That's good. So everything is juniper berries right now. They're so sweet. Oh, they're sweet? Yeah. Those are the California juniper. They are like little fruits. They become completely like a crunchy molasses. You can, you can actually use them to make drinks, like some uh, apple drinks. Wow. Uh, it's very rare. In the desert, usually they dry so fast that they don't have the time to really mature and they become dehydrated. But if I find some in the desert close to a stream, this is really, this is location-based foraging. 
Like you can do that, like you do location-based and that will change the flavor profile of a plant. Like if you collect lime squat in the sun, it will have a different flavor than lime squat in the shade. Or curry duck in the sun and curry duck in the water is a completely different flavor. So juniper, right location, new water, and it tastes like, it's more sweeter than date. It's pure sugar. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I found some reference. So, I was 23, 23 years old, track, and she wow. said now. Oh. So she does that every. So. <laughs> three times, three times a day, daily prayer. Oh. <laughs> Are you done with the prayer? Okay. She's deaf too. No. Oh. <laughs> so she doesn't hear herself. So she doesn't meow. She screams at him. I remember reading a book like in 2010 when I really started with the forging. And the book says that native used that to make sweet little pancake for kids as candy. And I could not figure it out. Every time I was in the desert, I was like, oh. <laughs> yes. Well, it was tasting like pine soil type of thing. And then one time I see this tree with this incredible berries and I pick one up from the ground and I try it and it was pure sweetness. I was like, oh my God, that was true. It could be used as a little candy. And I had no idea. It blew my mind. I was like, wow. But it's all about location, location, location. You know, timing. And timing and location. Yeah, totally. You can also follow the animals. The coyotes love those berries when they're ripe. So if you see a lot of coyote tracks going to a tree, then you know that those berries are good to go. It's fascinating, the world of white crafting. I mean, it's what a lot of people would have known in the old days. You know, if I want to know what something is in the environment, for example, I can look at coyote poop of food. And they will, they will tell me that there is current over here. There is, you know, coffee berries and open different stuff. Because it's... Basically, an email they send me saying, this is the food we find locally. <laughs> it's the all-time internet. <laughs> like, I'm just sending you an email. <laughs> this is what you can find locally. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so is there anything else that you would want for people to... I think we cover a lot. I think we did talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, well... Cover a lot. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciated the conversation. The, the thing I can say, you know, the more I do this stuff, the more I realize I don't know shit. And it's the amount of possibilities, absolutely mind-boggling and infinite. You can't stop learning. Like I'm in, in a more native environment where I keep to some high in the mountains, you have less invasive plant. And I'm finding all those greens and seeds. I do research on it and suddenly I found that more than 50% are edible. So I come to the conclusion that there may be hundreds of edible seeds available locally in Southern California, hundreds, and probably half of them are non-native and half of them will be native. I'm going to concentrate on the non-native one because they are frankly like the more common one. This is all lost knowledge to a large degree because the old world Europe was civilized. They're not going to touch those grains like that. You know, poo-poo it because it's been an agricultural society for 2,000 years. No, or more than that, 4,000 years, probably. 
So people have forgotten all those greens and seeds. They are fascinating to rediscover. And they taste every single one is a flavor. And seeds, you go over like, we're going to make bread. No, what about sprouting? No, what about sprouting? What about adding them to ferment? What about using them as spice? What about using them in, you know, I just posted on my Instagram, I did a breakfast cereal this morning. Everything is made from greens and seeds that I collected locally. Super nutritious. This is the ancestor. I'm mean, wild barley, which is the ancestor of the regular barley. That is my biggest epiphany when I was looking at seed and grains like two years ago was, you know, I was in the store and I looked at all those civilized stuff around me and I went, it was like being in the matrix. It's like, what if the weeds were the real food? Because if you, when you collect all those grains and seed and you were looking at the nutritional value, the probably will be way higher than your boring grains that like wheat and millet. Because those, I mean, it's only about the money and time. Those grains were chosen because they're easy to grow and they yield a lot, but that doesn't mean they are the most nutritional, they don't have the most nutritional value. If you look back in time and look at the teeth of hunter-gatherer, they were perfect. And when agriculture came in, all the teeth started falling off because of the, you know, the starch that would turn into sugar in the mass. Anyway. I'm rambling right now. <laughs> no, it's fascinating though. And I think that there's a lot there to think about. Yeah. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Au revoir. Tu parles français? Oui, je parle français. <laughs> As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. I highly recommend checking out Pascal's books. They're well-researched, visually stunning, thoughtfully put together, creative, and deeply inspirational. Thanks for listening. This was the first episode for which I've included a transcript. If you found it to be useful, please let me know at carmenporter.com. I'll consider transcribing all previous and future episodes if you enjoyed or appreciated this feature. Happy harvesting.